All right, thank you. Would you take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4? We're going to be looking at verses 31 to 44 this morning. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read that in a little bit, but I want to share with you a story um, that I think is significant. It's not directly related to the message, but this past week I was attending a conference down at our seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And the, the uh, conference was on the Reformation. It's the 500th anniversary of Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the chapel in Wittenberg. And uh, it, it was a very significant conference. But one of the stories I wanted to share with you uh, was told by Al Moeller. Al Moeller is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he was back at Trinity, and it really sounded like this is the first time he had actually come and spoken at the seminary, or maybe that was just in more recent times. And, and Al wanted to say this word of thanks to Trinity and to the Evangelical Free Church, and that's why I wanted to share it with you. Um, he was elected president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary when he was 33 years old. He's now 58. Um, he's been there a long time. But he was elected in the midst of a period, going back to the 70s, 80s, and that period when the Southern Baptist denomination was really fighting for the soul of the denomination. There was a very strong liberal movement that wanted to take them away from the gospel, more social gospel, more uh, works, and moving away from the heart of the gospel. And then there was a very strong conservative element that was also championing and fighting for that. And he said, here we were in the midst of this struggle, and he said, honestly, we did not have the tools to fight this battle. And he said, where do we find those tools? Where do we find those resources that helped us? He said, we found it here at TED's in the Evangelical Free Church. And at that time in the 70s and 80s, under the leadership of Dr. Ken Conser, um, God did an extraordinary thing when bringing together a number of faculty who were just leaders in their fields. They were the ones who wrote the books. They were the ones that other schools and seminaries were using. They were the ones that were really making an impact. And it was through that encouragement and the resources that they found there that began to turn the tide and shape the Southern Baptist denomination at that point in history. And he just said, I just want to thank you. I want to thank the Lord, and I want to thank you for the gift that Ted's has been to the broader evangelical world. And that it has helped to shape um, other denominations more than we will ever know. And I had known the stories about how there are whole denominations in Africa, Korea, other parts of the world that have been trained at Trinity and have gone back, and I knew about that. But I had never heard that story that Al Mohler shared this weekend. And I say that to kind of highlight the importance of our support of our schools and how significant it is that we pray for them and the financial support that we give that makes a huge difference there. But mostly, I share that story to give glory to God for what He has done and how sometimes He can work 
in small denominations or in unlikely ways to accomplish great things for the kingdom. So let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then I'm going to move into our text for today. Father, we thank you for the way that you are at work in our world, and in ways that go far beyond what we would see or realize. And what you ask of us is to be faithful, to be your people who love you, who hold to your word, who speak the truth and love, who live it out in our lives. And that's our desire. Father, as we come each week to worship and to hear from your word, we don't want to just be hearers only. We want to put it into practice and pray that you would use us to make a difference in our community, our workplace, our schools, our world. And so, Father, would you do your work today in our hearts as we look at this passage of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read for us Luke chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. And then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he began to teach the people. And they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. And he cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. And Jesus left the synagogue, and he went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. I want us to think about this question of authority this morning. What is it that gives a leader his or her authority? Well, for some, their authority comes from their position, their title, or their place. You can think about our president, President Trump, right now. He has a position of authority over us. Not everybody's happy about that, and we see some protests going on, and people are not necessarily in favor of everything that he's doing. But he is to have our respect and our prayers. We see that example in the Scripture when, at the time that Paul wrote, it was the Roman Caesars who ruled the world. They were feared, but they weren't loved. And yet, 
Paul will write that we are to pray for kings and all who are in authority over us in order that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives. That God uses government, he uses people in authority for our good is his intent. Some people have authority because of knowledge. There are people who are known as experts in their field or leaders in their field of study. Might be in science, could be in manufacturing or business, it could be in law or theology, and they are respected because of their great knowledge and years of study and practice. Some people are leaders because of personal charisma. They're just natural born leaders, we might say. Might be a teacher, might be a coach, might be an inspirational leader or politician even that others are drawn to. We can think of in American history, John F. Kennedy, who was a very gifted uh, speaker. People were drawn to his personal charisma. Or Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement and how people were drawn to him because of his passion and eloquence in which he spoke, but also the way he lived. And finally, some people are leaders because of their character, their integrity. I mean, you look at their life and you see something different in them and you want to be like them. It might be a parent, it might be a mentor, someone that you respected, that you were drawn to. Well, the greatest example of authority and leadership is Jesus. And when you think about those four areas, I mean, there was no one like Jesus. That's what we're going to see in this text. I mean, in terms of position or title, he's given the name that's above every other name. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In terms of his knowledge, it is limitless. He knows the heart of man. He knows what's in us. He knows the Scripture, because it is His Word, He knows it fully and accurately. His personal charisma, people were drawn to Him. Not because there was anything special in His appearance, but because there was something special about His person and His character, His love. And what we're going to see in this passage is that Luke will highlight three areas where Jesus' authority in particular stood out. And the people were amazed. And we're going to see that over and over again. And why does Luke tell us these things? Because he wants us to put ourselves in that place to hear and and see what was going on in the world at the time that Jesus was ministering and to respond appropriately to who this one is. So first of all, he highlights his authority in teaching in verses 31 and 32. He tells us that Jesus moved on from Nazareth. You remember last week when Pastor Jason was talking about previous passage? Jesus had spoken in the synagogue in Nazareth. He had opened the scroll up to Luke, excuse me, to Isaiah, this passage that is quoted in Luke. And he reads in Isaiah how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And all these other works that he's going to do. And so the people hear this and they are glad. They're they're rejoicing. And Jesus says today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But then he begins to offer some correction and says some things that they didn't like to hear and they turn against him and are ready to push him over a cliff. But he walked 
through them, unharmed, untouched. So now it says he goes down to Capernaum. And that, that is literal. Um, Nazareth is about 1,200 feet above sea level. Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, and that's about 680 feet below sea level. So he's walking that way to the east, and he's going down to Capernaum. Capernaum was a small village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing and agricultural village where Jesus would stay and he would return to many times. It became kind of a base that he would go out from and come back to. And one of the reasons for that was that Simon Peter's home was there and he probably stayed there on several occasions. If you visit Capernaum today you can see the remains of a 4th century synagogue, and we have a picture of that that could be shown. The remains of a 4th century synagogue that is there. It's a white synagogue built upon the location of the previous synagogue. And you get a feel of the size and where Jesus would have taught. If you go to the next slide, um, this shows that The darker stones below were the foundation of the older synagogue, the one that we believe Jesus spoke in and taught and where this miracle took place. And it's kind of amazing that you can go there, see these things, stand in the very place where Jesus would have stood and where this miracle took place. And then, uh, you know, going also in the next slide, this one's... um, a little harder to make out in one sense, but this is the area that they believe was Peter's home. Uh, Today it's covered by a structure over it that protects it, but this area where you have the stone foundations was the area where Peter's home was. See Galilee in the background. And it's only about a block from the synagogue. It's not far at all to walk from one uh, to the other. And so you, you get this setting where Jesus is about to do this teaching and these miracles. When he taught in the synagogue, the people again were amazed. They were shocked, really. This word amazed is a strong word. Jesus wasn't a rabbi. I mean, he had no formal training. This is a carpenter's son. And when he taught, his teaching was different than any of the other teachers that they knew. In those days, when a rabbi taught, he would quote a string of previous rabbis and their statements as his authority. You know, and so it's going back, the rabbi so-and-so said, and rabbi so-and-so said, and rabbi so-and-so said. And when Jesus taught, he, he didn't do any of that. I mean, you think of the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard this said, but I say to you. He wasn't quoting others for his authority or for a correct interpretation or to verify that what he taught was the truth. He spoke directly. He never said, I think this is what it means or this is my opinion on this text. He spoke directly. And his words had power and authority. He preached God's word. And I, I think about that. What does that mean for us? Or what is it that gives our preaching? What is it that gives our witnessing power and authority? It is not our opinions. It's not our thoughts about things. It is the Word of God. It is this Word that is truth. 
This is what sanctifies us. This is what changes our life. It is the power of the Word of God as we hear it. And so even though in our world there may be people who don't want to believe that, don't want to believe that this is the Word of God, that doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. Use the Word. This is the sword of the Spirit. And when used in the power of the Holy Spirit, it does its work. It convicts. It encourages. It challenges. It strengthens us. It builds our faith. Once Harry Ironside, a a well-known preacher in the past, was greeted by a visitor who said that he enjoyed the service, although he did not think Ironside was a great preacher. Well, Henry Ironside kind of graciously replied and said, I know I'm not a great preacher, but what was it about my preaching that brought you to that conclusion? Well, the man answered, well, I understood everything you said. (laughs) Kind of an unwitting confession of one of the reasons for Ironside's greatness. He spoke in a way that people could understand it. And I've thought many times through the years, one of the best compliments that you give me is when you say, Pastor, you helped me to understand God's Word. Or you made that so clear. I mean, I got what that was saying. That's the intent of good teaching and preaching. It's to bring the Word of God to life, to see how this book affects us today and how it applies to our life. So don't ever shy away from using the Word of God in your conversation, in your teaching. You know, a similar comment was once made about Billy Graham by a journalist. And this is when Billy Graham was holding his crusades many years ago, and he was, you know, well-known. And all these people were coming to these crusades. And this journalist wanted to figure out, well, why is that? So he went to a series of meetings, you know, and he sat there and he listened. He's not a believer. He doesn't get it. And he just didn't think Billy Graham was a good speaker at all. I mean, he kind of rambled, and then all of his messages ended the same. (laughs) As he concluded and shared the gospel and gave the invitation to come forward. And he said in his article, he said, I find nothing in Billy Graham to account for the success of his ministry. And Billy Graham agreed. And he said, that's it. He said, there is nothing in me to account for it. This is God's work. And do you remember what one of his favorite sayings was? When Billy Graham would preach, how many times did he say, the Bible says? It's not what I say. It's what God says that matters. And I remember from being involved in a couple of his crusades as well as a volunteer that they would emphasize that the three keys to the success of any crusade are prayer, prayer, and more prayer. It's God's work. And secondly, what we see in Jesus is his authority over demons. And we see that in verses 33 to 37. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. Luke adds that because if someone is reading this and they don't know what a demon is, the description an evil spirit gives an idea of what this is. Demons are supernatural beings. They are fallen angels who rebelled against God along with Satan. Satan is their ruler. The demons are like his minions, his staff who go out and are trying to mess up lives and destroy the work of God in our world. 
We see examples in Scripture where demons can cause mental disorder. They can cause violent action or behavior. They cause bodily disease. They can cause rebellion against God. And Satan was concentrating his attack on Jesus in his earthly ministry. What is shocking here, though, is that the demon-possessed man was in the synagogue. I mean, it's like he was there in church. You know, and you think about that. Did anybody notice? Was this guy new that day? Or had he been there for a while and people thought, you know, there's something odd about Josiah, but I don't know what it is. I mean, I just, I think about that. Here was a demon-possessed man right in their midst. And we wonder if anyone had noticed or knew what to do. And so, as Jesus is there, this demon cries out. And he cries out in this unearthly voice. The demon knew who Jesus was. He knows his power and authority. And he knows his doom. That's why he asked this question, What have you come to do with us? What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I mean, he knows that is his ultimate end. And then he cries out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Some of the commentators think that perhaps this demon was even trying to manipulate Jesus. Some at that time thought that if you knew a spirit's name or a person's name, you could control them. But it didn't work here. Here was a demon who knew who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God, he was the Holy One of God, and he knew why he had come. But he did not believe. He had not surrendered to Jesus. And it is an example of what James means when he says in his book, to those who are wondering, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What is true faith? And James wrote and he said, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In other words, he is telling us that saving faith is more than just believing or knowing that God exists. Saving faith calls us to turn from our sin and repentance and obedience. It calls us to place our faith, our trust in Jesus and to love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and that the demons will not do. So what does Jesus do? Jesus silenced the demon and commanded him to come out, and this man was set free. And for a second time, the people were amazed at what Jesus did. And they said, with authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits, and they come out. One of the questions people ask today is, does this still happen? Do we still have demonic possession in our world. It was interesting, last summer there was an article in the Washington Post where a man who was a psychiatrist wrote about that very topic. His name is Richard Gallagher. He's a board-certified psychiatrist. He's a professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical College. And he said, for the past two and a half decades, in over several hundred consultations, I have helped clergy from multiple denominations filter episodes of mental illness, 
which represent the majority of cases from demonic involvement. And here is a man who admitted he got a lot of pushback on it from peers who thought this isn't even possible. But he's saying from his 25 years of study and practice, he believes that there is still this demonic oppression possession. Now, we believe it because the Bible teaches that, but I'm sharing this as an example of a man who's a professional psychiatrist who also has seen it in his practice. Dr. Tim Warner, who taught at TED's at Trinity when I was there, uh, had been on the mission field for many years and came back to teach at the seminary, and he admitted that it can be hard to discern between what is bizarre human behavior things like multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia and other things, from demonic possession. But what we see is that Satan doesn't fight fair, and when someone struggles in a certain area or when there's weakness, Satan often gets in. And with a believer, he can't possess us. We belong to Christ. There's not demonic possession for a believer, because that involves ownership, and we belong to Jesus. But there can be harassment, there can be affliction, there definitely are the spiritual battles that he talked about. But with those who don't know Christ, if they have opened themselves up in some way, there can be demonic possession today too. And I believe we see some examples of that in our world when we see some of these horrific acts of violence, terrorism, bizarre human behavior that just makes no sense. It is so evil. Was it more intense in Jesus' ministry? Yes, it was. In Jesus, the kingdom of God had come in power. It was breaking into our world. And it was all-out spiritual war. Satan knew why Jesus had come. He knew that this was the decisive moment. And if he loses here, he loses everything. And so you can imagine these attacks that came incessantly at Jesus. Whatever Satan could do to defeat him, he would try. Today, I think Satan's strategy, at least in our world, is more the opposite in one sense, in this sense. I think that Satan would rather have people not believe in him at all or believe in Jesus or believe in supernatural power. As long as people are on the road to hell... He doesn't really care. Where we do see the more dramatic confrontations in our world is on the mission field where the gospel is going into new territories for the very first time and you have this confrontation. And you see more of this kind of open spiritual warfare than we sometimes see here. How do we resist Satan? We follow Jesus' example. It's by the Word of God. It is the same way that Jesus defeated Satan and those temptations in the wilderness. It's by putting our trust, our confidence in the Word and using that Word, the sword of the Spirit. It's by standing firm, clothed with the full armor of God, taking advantage and using every one of those things that have been put at our disposal. James 4 says, Submit yourselves to God then. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Believer, stand your ground clothed in the armor of God and use that sword of the Spirit and use that shield of faith and use the power of prayer. 
And thirdly, we see in Jesus this authority to heal in verses 38 to 44. We're going to see this many times in these miracles that take place. Jesus left the synagogue, and now he goes to the home of Simon. And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. That word high fever was actually a medical term at that time. We don't know the exact cause. A high fever can be caused by many things, a virus, a flu, something like that. But we know what that's like. I mean, if you've ever had a high fever... You know how draining that could be? It just saps your strength. You've got to drink lots of fluid or try to get that restored and your energy level up. And sometimes after you've had the flu, you just feel wiped out for two or three days until you get back to normal. So Jesus comes to her side. He bends over and he rebukes the fever and it is gone. And here, Luke, the physician, distinguishes between demonic possession and illness. Jesus has power over both, but they are different. And sometimes Christians can go to one extreme or the other. Some people want to deny the existence of Satan, and they don't even think about spiritual battle or warfare in this regard. And then there are others who see a demon behind every bush. And Luke presents a more balanced view that there are times of real spiritual uh, harassment, oppression, pray against it. But there are also times when it's an illness, and it's just an illness. Now, God is sovereign over both, but on this occasion, Jesus prayed for her, rebuked the fever, it came out, she was well, and she got up. And she served. She was healed to serve. And then we go on, and later that night when the Sabbath was over, people brought to Jesus all who were sick, and he healed them. Many demons came out again and shouted, You are the Son of God, but Jesus silenced them all. He did not want their testimony, even though he knew they knew he was the Christ. Now was not the time. He knew that this teaching would be misunderstood about what the Messiah coming would mean. It didn't mean a political deliverance at this time. He knew if the crowds took this and carried this out, it would lead to conflict with Rome. But there was still work that he wanted to do, the training of the twelve that was so important to his mission. So early the next morning, Jesus goes out to a solitary place, and Mark adds that he went out to pray. That was Jesus' custom. He would minister, he'd be with the people, but he would have these retreats, these times when he would go and pray and talk to his Father in heaven. And I think about that. If that was important for Jesus to do, to be recharged and to spend time with his Father, it is especially important for us. The best way to do that is really a daily quiet time, time in His Word and prayer. It's why we come to worship on Sundays, to be uh, restored, to be encouraged in our relationship with God. It's why we need one another, but it's also why we need some quiet time ourselves, a time alone with God in His presence. There was a statement that I heard early in my ministry, and I tried to find out 
who this is attributed to, and I, I couldn't. But it's a statement that no man can help others who is always with others. That no man can help others who is always with others. We need those times to step back from the crowd to be filled ourselves so that we can minister out of an overflowing heart. Does God still heal today? Yes, He does. But there's no one who has the gift of healing like Jesus. Even those ministries that claim to be faith healing ministries will admit when studies are done that around 2% to 10% of the people who come are healed or experience some kind of divine intervention in that way. The way that God normally heals is through medical means, the skills and gifts that He has given to those who practice in that area. But He still calls us to pray and He calls the elders to pray and it is God's work. And when we pray and we lift up our brothers and sisters before the Lord, God does bring healing. And He can do that through medical means. He can do that through restoring a person's soul or spirit or energy. And to Him belongs the glory. And then finally, what we see in this passage is then Jesus would move on. He would not stay there, but He would go and He would preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that was why He was sent. And as we continue in our study in Luke, we're going to follow Jesus as He travels from place to place. So what do we learn? What do we take away from a passage like this? Well, what Luke wants us to see again is that there's no one like Jesus, no one taught like Him with the authority He has, no one had power like Him to cast out demons or to heal the sick. Jesus is all authority in heaven and on earth. We are to listen to Him and follow Him. And thirdly, Jesus is still at work in our world through His church. Through you and me and through the churches that are faithful to follow Him, through missionaries that are at work in our world, the gospel is advancing and the kingdom of God is growing every single day. And what a joy it is to share with Him in His work and to be part of that great movement of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these stories that we can read that just bless our heart when we think of who Jesus is. And thank You for the grace that You have shown to us in welcoming us into Your family. Help us this week to live as Your servants in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand for our benediction? And we'll close our service. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.